Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Stackwaddy game. I've got a belter, Mark. It's sent in by a listener. And this is really good. Sent in by Phil Kinderman. This is really good. I I won't explain to you the premise. You'll get it as I go through them, okay? Okay. You've got to spot the odd one out of these. Chicago 36, Tubular Bells 4, Bat Out of Hell 3, Peter Gabriel 4, Toto 14. It sounds like a bizarre kind of Scottish League Division Two rock band. It, it does. It does. You actually had that Toto Toto fourteen. Yeah. That's right. You had that kind so, of. This once you have a number. That's what you'd naturally yeah, do. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll do it again. Chicago thirty six, Tubular of Elves four, Bad Out of Hell three, Peter Gabriel four, Toto fourteen. One of those doesn't exist. Which one? Sent in by Phil Kinderman. Excellent idea. It's a really good idea. Well, there were at least four albums called Peter Gabriel uh, and Toto, Bat Out of Hell. There were three Bat Out of Hells. What was the second one again? Tubular Bells 4. Yeah, there were four Tubular Bells. Um, I'm tempted to say it's not Chicago 36 because that's so absurd. And there were so many records just called Chicago (laughs) that I'm prepared to accept that there actually were 36 Chicago albums. I'm going back to, I'm saying it's Toto 14. The, could, the world did not want 14 albums <laughs> called Toto by Toto. What's well, it, it got 14 albums no, called no, Toto. No. So Chicago 36 is real. Bad Out of Hell 3 is real. Peter Gabriel 4 is real. Toto 14 is real. Jubilee Wells 4 is not oh, real because there were only three. Though you're right. That's really good. Phil that Kinderman, good? that's very, very good work <laughs> indeed. Really Bless good. Bless him. I just got sent one from uh, from a, a subscriber called Harry Lingard, which I thought I'd try out. Now this is a departure from the normal thing, Dave. It's right. a different structure, okay? So the premise is black metal band or item of IKEA furniture. <laughs> it's really good. It's really good, okay? And I've got ten of them, and you've got to get. I'll, 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 ten, I'll, I'll, it's going to be ten, and if you get more than half of them 
right? You won. It's simply your question is, is it a black metal band or is it Night of Mikey and Furniture? I'm sure you're going to have to guess. Oh, okay, no. number one, Sargeist. <laughs> it's good, isn't it? Sargeist. Are you going to say, is that is that some flat plaque assembly <laughs> shelving <coughs> or is it, um, or is it a, a, a black metal band? Sargeist. It's a black metal band. You're absolutely right. Finnish black metal band formed in 1999. One to Hepworth. Clubbo. <laughs> I always spelled it that. K-L-U-B-B-O. Clubbo. <laughs> oh, good grief. Uh, flat pack furniture. Very good. Again, you're right. It's annoying. It's a coffee table. <laughs> Gruntdal, G-R-U-N-T-D-A-L, Gruntdal. Is that a black metal band or is that something from Ikea? Black metal band. It's not, it's a wall shelf. Ein Herger. Ein Herger. Three more from them. Black metal band. Yes. Oh, no, you're soaring here. Well, I'm they're a Viking play. metal band from Haugesund, Norway. <laughs> That's brilliant. Okay, Sko Baby. Spell? S-K-O-B-A-B-Y. Sko Baby. Black metal band. No. No, it's a three-seater <laughs> leather effect sofa. <laughs> I thought you might get that one, because Sko Baby doesn't sound kind of hard and aggressive enough to be a black metal band. But okay, no, that's good. So you're over halfway, I think, drooged. D R U D K H Drugged. D R U D R U D K Black Metal yeah. Band. Yes, Ukrainian black metal band. Oh my god, you're doing well. <laughs> um okay, where have we got to? Craft. <laughs> I had some craft. Flat pack furniture. No, that's <laughs> a ringer too. It's a Swedish black metal band originally formed under the name Nocta in 1994. Three, four. You've got four right. You've got to get two of the next two right to win. Okay. Akakoke. So A-K-E-R-C-O-C-K-E. Akakoke. Oh, good grief. Uh, flat pack furniture. No, no. They're <laughs> extreme metal band from London formed in 1997. I <laughs> know. Oh, it's absurd, isn't it? And the last two are Bohol, Boholmen. Boholmen. Uh, black metal band. It's a stainless steel sink. <laughs> And and Bastig, that's a great name, Bastig. <laughs> flat back furniture. Yeah, it's a nickel plated handle. You've got five out of five out of ten. I'm going to let you say you won because that's fantastic. That's a superb performance. But it's very funny, wasn't it? Who who sent that in? That was sent by Harry Lingard. That was really good work, actually. Just very good. Work. Actually, sent loads more than that. I just I just picked the best ten. Very very funny. Uh, <coughs> so what's been happening? Oh, well, Bill Bailey won the Strictly Come Dancing yesterday. Are you an avid viewer? of? Uh, no, I'm not an avid Strictly. viewer at all. I've never watched it before, but I just love Bill Bailey. I'm sorry. <laughs> I absolutely love him. I just got interested in just keeping tabs on whether or not you get booted out in the first episode. And believe it or not, and this is a, a moment of great national celebration and a testament of hope for all of us in these troubled times. Bill Bailey actually won last night, <laughs> and that was just fantastic. It made a terribly emotional speech. Oh, it was just, it was just brilliant television. And uh, it reminded me that we should plug, I think, two great clips, which I might post at the end of this, actually, of Bill Bailey's two, two of his great musical clips. One is, have you ever seen the one he does in the 
an impression of a, of a catastrophic technical failure at a U2 gig. <laughs> and he's just making the point that Edge, the Edge's guitar is entirely about sound effects. Yeah. And he can make, he can with one guitar make a sound exactly like you two. But the moment the effects turn off, it's just him going winky dinky dinky dinky. And it's just really very funny bit of comedy. And the other thing, which I think is absolutely brilliant, which I discovered a while back, is um, he does this impression of Billy Bragg. He's busking somewhere, someone that's being filmed. He does an impression of Billy Bragg, uh, a, a song about a girl called Debbie working in a politically oppressive chip shop in Raynham. And uh, this girl gives him a look that he interprets as, help, I'm a woman in chains. And he has to assert his masculinity. And it is just one of the funniest impressions of anyone. It's so like Billy Bragg. His mannerisms, his vocal inflections, the types of songs he writes is really funny. We should, uh, we should uh, we'll right, post right. that too. So look out for it. Funny so yeah, no, the other big event, I think this week, which you've seen it too, I think, isn't it? Is that, is that, I think it's a big event. It's the Bee Gees documentary. Oh, they, yeah, I saw it. I, I, I watched it yesterday. Now, I have to say, it, it, it annoyed me in the way that loads of rock documentaries annoy me. You think, well, obviously they're going to have a member of Oasis in here. You know, the, oh, yeah, the yeah. talk he adds Chris will Martin be, will appear. It's, it's got you've got to you've got to have that, and nobody gets a complete sentence out in an interview at all. No, Everything's just true. cut in two, you know. And and I, uh, sorry, I'm going to say something positive in a moment. And yeah. I also, I don't know if you feel this when you're watching rock documentaries nowadays, because there are so many of them, that, that, um, that the old magazine editor in you keeps, you can't keep them below the surface. Because after about 20 minutes, you want to go, stop, hold on, tell me that again. Let's yeah. just go into that little bit in a bit more detail. A bit deeper. That's really interesting. Because, but no, they don't do that. They just keep flying forward in search of their great arc of narrative, you know what yeah, I mean? which is always just pronounced highs and lows, isn't it? It's they were really, really successful. They sold millions of records, and then it was catastrophe. Dun, dun, dun. They couldn't leave the home because yeah. they were being sort of insulted by members of the general public. Having said all that, the Bee Gees is an extraordinary story. It's an extraordinary saga, and they, God, they made some brilliant records over a long, long period of time, probably longer than anybody else. You know, they've had, they've had... More than one golden era, haven't they? You know. Yeah, this uh, they had this documentary instead. It's called "How uh, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart?" It's by the the documentary maker Frank Marshall. I, I found it on Amazon Prime, but it's all over the place. But yeah, two. I mean, two major. Although my one beef is that they missed out a classic part of the of the BG story. I think I bet you know which one. I'm well, talking about. I, I don't. But unless I'm right, unless I'm wrong, the BGs. Put out a record called uh, what's it called? Specs and Sparks. Um, Specs and Specs. Spe sorry, Specs Spix and Specs in Australia. Yeah. They then had written to Brian Epstein saying, you know, and sent him yeah. a cassette or something. Like that. Yeah. And uh, and got a letter back saying, if you come to England, Robert Stigwood, who works for my organisation, will see you. They then, I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying, got on a boat. And they sailed, and in those days it took six weeks, sailed to England to see Robert Stigwood. And when they got to the Suez Canal, which was about halfway uh, through, they got a message saying they were number one in Australia. So they were completely conflicted. They now got a hugely successful career, the number one single in Australia, and we're going to to yeah. a completely uncertain future in, in England. I thought that was a really, really no, interesting that's part of the not, story. That's not it's in not it. In there. Well. It's and not I in there you, at all. I'll tell you the other thing that I don't think was in there at all, unless I, I, I completely missed it, is I don't think You Win Again is in there at all. No, it's not. 
which was an enormous bloody UK number one hit, wasn't it? And that was like another comeback from whenever that was. And I don't know how long ago that was. Uh, it's not in there at all. But they, they, you know, they do the story they want to do. No. And it's, no. One of the things that struck me straight away was that it's the Dave Hepworth theory that that you can measure uh, the value of pop music by its musical worth and by the personality of the people making it. This is one of your old theories. I think it's a really good one. The Beatles being an incredibly good example of someone who had maximum of both. both. <laughs> but it struck me that the Bee Gees had immense, immense musical worth. Here, you know, I've, got a, I've got a CD here with 19 of their number one singles, you know. Yeah. Uh, immense musical worth. But in terms of personality, I looked at them, and I know the Bee Gees very, very well. I don't know if I well, I know Robin. But which one's Barry again and which one's Morris? I just can't quite remember. I thought, oh, I can, like re- that, that I can remember years, that. I can't quite remember who's who. I don't think anybody, <laughs> that, I may be going out on a limb here. I mean, because I admire the Bee Gees hugely and I've loved hugely. loads of their records. And it's all about the records. It's not about them. It's totally about, about the them. sound of the records. And yeah. um, I've never once looked at, you know, and I bought the first Bee Gees single in the UK UK New York mining disaster 1971. <laughs> there really was, good record. There was no New York mining disaster in 1971. Um, and I bought the first album, and, uh, and so I've followed them ever since. But I don't think you ever looked at them at any point and thought they look cool. I don't Never. think you ever thought that for a second. Not no even Morris, who was tried, fabulous looking. Yeah. No matter how much they tried or didn't try, you never looked at them and thought, that's a club I'd like to join. I'd like yeah. to... Nobody ever... I think I'm right in saying this. Nobody ever the looked at The clothes were terrible. The Nobody ever of... looked at the Bee Gees and thought, I'd like to go for a pint with those guys. <laughs> they looked fun. You thought... Oh, that's a brilliant idea. I'll go out with Robin Gibb for a knockabout <laughs> bit of banter. <laughs> a bit of bant. <laughs> and... Um, they were they were kind of lost in showbiz, weren't they, from an early age? Completely. But and it's in two stories. It's, it's two sections, isn't it? It's the huge success post-Beatles. They sound a yeah, bit like the Beatles, yeah. the kind of psychedelic sound, you know. And it's so cliché. The Barry at one point says, before I was 21, I had six Rolls Royces. Yes. Why would you want even one Rolls Royce, really? Yes. But six Rolls Royces. What's the point of this? This is so cretinous and cliched, you know. But anyway, they have all that, and they're, they're, they're really successful. And then they fall from grace, and then they have to reinvent themselves. And that is really interesting, I think, isn't it? They go out to 461 Ocean Boulevard, because Eric Clapton, who's also signed to RSO, says, go and use the studio. Well, and I think it's really interesting. <coughs> Eric Clapton, this is classically the way these documentaries are put together, that they do an outline, and they go, now, where can we get some big rock names in here? OK, OK, yeah. Noel Gallagher, Noel Gallagher there, yeah. Chris Martin there, yeah. uh, Guy at the Jonas Brothers there, Eric Clapton, because he was on the same label, same you know, similar management and so forth. And uh, and they always say that that you know the, the Bee Gees went to Miami because Eric Clapton told them to go to Miami because he'd been there and he made for yeah. Boulevard. And so Eric Clapton is interviewed, clearly has no memory whatsoever of saying this. You know, at the end of the interview, he goes, well, if that's my place in history, that's fine. Kind yes, of thing. quite. He's quite genial about it. Yeah, but and they clearly, go, no, it fits, it, it fits. Just, it just fits. say it was, just agree Absolutely. with it. Yeah. Uh, uh, which he does, you know. And, of course, you, you get all the... Uh, I tell you, the bit I liked was uh, Albie Galuton and uh, and Carl Richardson, the engineer, um, redoing 
and this is something they don't do often enough in these kind of films, technically, how they did the drum loop on... Saturday Night Fever. Was it uh, Night well, Fever? The, it was Night Fever, so it was Night Fever's the song, that's right, yeah. Because the story goes that, uh, that the, dumber, uh, the drummer, Dennis Bryan, had to go back to Wales because for the fu- there was a funeral and so yeah, they just looped. Ill. Yeah. They looped a bit of his drums, uh, which they did in the most Heath Robinson way fashionable uh, possible because that's the only way you could do it. In those yeah, days. they spliced it out, didn't they? With 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 with, with a you know razor but blade it, and but he also he also got, it back in. You got a really long piece of tape and then and then you had you had it running on the normal spool over there. And then you had Carl Richardson standing at the other end of the studio, twirling around a pencil or something like yeah, that. Yeah, that's right. Because that's, that's right. the only way you could get it to pass the heads at the, at the right so, you know, uh, interval that you needed to play it back. I love, I love seeing that kind of thing. I do. I couldn't agree more. And it's, I thought it was an amazing moment because Dennis Bryan then returns from his mother's funeral or whatever to find that, in a sense, they don't really need him anymore. <laughs> They've invented the drum loop, and Absolutely. this works. It's absolutely reliable. It and never all, lets you down. It never all, varies. Uh, and all these things, which are now just a, a, a button push away, yeah, used to be just really hard to do. And it's I not know. that long ago, really. Well, you know, if you're as old as we are, it's not that long ago. Um, and uh, you know, their part in in all this is 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 immense, no doubt about another, it. I thought another really good bit was the thing about the kind of militant disco wars. Because I didn't know that, you know, this is a about the I think they about over, black they and overplayed gay. that. They, are, they slightly overplayed it, but I didn't know that there was a law in, in even up to the mid-70s in New York clubs where uh, you couldn't dance with a person of the same sex in a place that had a liquor license. Yeah, I always So they 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 obviously adopted the the, the Bee Gees, you know, songs, you know, jive talking and stuff as a kind of major soundtrack for this kind of for this movement you know and then there was the event do you remember the uh, event was called was it called disco demolition uh, demolition dark yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, in, uh, in kaminsky park in illinois disco demolition night where they invited everyone to come along between two matches like the chicago white Sox and detroit Detroit tigers and for 98 cents you could get in if you bought a disco record with you and they would blow them all up at, at half time in the middle of the pitch you know <laughs> i thought this is just absolutely well because the records they bought along with things like al green and stevie wonder and marvin gay well, yeah, disco no, records no, no. so it all became a bit you know racist and a bit homophobic really but i thought i don't know i thought it was i thought it was a really interesting story and they i mean they're they're great records and um, i learned quite a lot about it I liked. I, I very much liked the. Um, of course, they got, got the additional thing of being brothers, which is, I think Robin said. No, I think Barry says at one point. After we got famous, I ceased to know anything about my brother's personal lives. Yeah, I thought that was because, <laughs> you know, they lived kind of in the back of a yeah. van or whatever a tour bus, and, uh, and when they were on the road, and then when that stopped. They all went to their individual kind of Tudor mansions in in varying different countries or suburbs or whatever, and all got married and and all just pursued lives that the other ones, the other two knew nothing about at all. I thought that was really interesting. And developed eccentricities. And and he says, uh, somebody says, I think Morris says, when you're on your way up, all the energies in the group are pointed inwards to making the group successful. Every, everybody's thinking about that. 
as soon as you've got there, all the energy points outwards to what can I do for myself, which I thought was a really good way. Really, I thought that was a good point too. And I thought it was interesting. They talked about the way they composed and it's very unusual. It's three people writing together. Yeah. That's very unusual. Three people writing together. And I think Noel Gallagher makes the point that, you know, actually brothers singing is like an instrument yeah. in itself. You know, it is, um, yeah. you know, the Everly brothers just sounds like one yeah. voice duplicated. It's extraordinary, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I thought that was a really good point that somehow they'd managed to work out a way of collaborating the three of them on these songs where nobody felt that they were getting squeezed out and everybody felt they deserved their songwriting royalty. Um, and that kind of closeness and that kind of intuition was really quite effective. And actually, oh, Barry is quite funny. There's a point where it's Barry's, I think in an interview, someone, someone said, he said, Morris and I are twins. That's basically how we met. <laughs> it's pretty funny. So what did you make of the interview with, and because they, they, they talked to the three, you know, the three musicians, Blue Weaver, Dennis Bryan, and, uh, oh, God, what's the name of the guitar player? I can't remember. Um, uh, who, were, who were also part of their success and hugely important. In, in playing on those records and what did you make of Blue Weaver's interview where he talks about the composing of How Deep Is Your Love which was of course an enormous well movie. that was a fantastic part because he actually had if I remember right he has a cassette of the he has a cassette of them, them writing it, it. Them writing, trying out he's, chords he's playing the piano yeah and he clearly thinks he partly wrote it. Well, I think the story there is that he wouldn't have that cassette still hanging around if he didn't use it in a legal battle. <laughs> Don't you think? Don't you think that might have been used? Can we say it's, I think it would have been used? Never. It's not for me to say. But at no. the end of the interview, he says, I still feel it's emotionally part of me. And they hold the shot. Yes. His eyes missed over. His eyes kind of really hold. Because they're obviously trying, thought, to, trying to make the point without well, making if you, I actually went and looked at the song to see what the credit was. And the credit is the three members of the Bee Gees and Blue Weaver, yeah. brackets, uncredited. Yes. So that's what it says. So there must have been something. But I'm fairly sure, because I met Blue Weaver once when we were on Old Grey Whistle Test and I went out with the damned to Jutland, as you did. I don't know, you were probably going to the Isle of Man with Nazareth or something. <laughs> but I was, it was my turn to go to, the, to Jutland with the Isle of Dam, uh, with, with, to, with the Dam. And they, Blue Weaver was part of their setup then. He was helping working on a record they were making. Maybe he was producing or playing keyboards on it. Or and, uh, and I just talked to him a lot and got his story. And, and I got the impression that they were offered a royalty for recording those songs, Night Fever, etc., or points. And he just thought, on a whim, he'd had yeah, some points. Luck, points some is a points is a royalty. Oh right, what do, what do I? You mean, mean? Well, oh, sorry, a session, well, sorry, I mean, a session sorry, a session for your, your points. Sorry, a session for your points. And uh, I think he'd had something he'd done quite well for him recently. So he thought he'd just risk it. He thought, well, why not? It's been fun. They're interesting songs. They're different. It might just catch fire. You know? And so he went for points. And anyway, all I know is that when we got back to uh, with the part of West London I live in, I noted that Blue Weaver lives in a massive pile. A really fabulous place. They, they, all, live, out of it. they all live near you, Mark. They, I don't know. Yeah, that's, do they? that's what they all look forward to. You know, one day there'll be a great payday and we'll go and live near the same Mark street as Mark Ellen. <laughs> no, it's a very different setup. There's like, like the story of... Um, the members of Joe Cocker's Grease Band, who were hired in by Tim Rice to do a session for a load of songs that they were doing at Olympic in 1970, I think. And uh, and they said, what do you want a session for your points? 
And they said, oh, session fever. <laughs> they just went and drank it, you know. And that yeah. was Jesus Christ Superstar. Can you imagine? <laughs> You'd be kicking yourself the rest of your life. <laughs> Probably but they did all right out of it. And the other amazing thing is, of course, that him and the drummer were both in Amen Corner. What are the chances of that? You look at a picture of Amen Corner in 1968 or anything. Two of those guys are going to go on. Yeah, they, which, two? Part of the, which two? Which two will be, will be kind of key prime movers in the, in the, in the disco revolution? It's astonishing, isn't it? Anyway, How Do You Mend a Broken Heart? It's out there on uh, all the usual streaming services. And let's HBO. face it, what else have you got to do? The Word Podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. I saw that uh, <laughs> this is a really this is a really insignificant anniversary, Mark, this is. On the 20th of December, 1999, the readers of UK Guitar Magazine voted Nell Gallagher the most overrated guitarist of the millennium. Uh, Jimi Hendrix was voted guitarist of the millennium. And Nirvana's Nevermind was the best album. And I just thought, I can remember all those times in my youth where people used to sit around drawing up lists of who was supposed to be the best guitar. No, exactly the same with me, but actually just to say, <laughs> Noel Gallagher, in his defence, was who was saying that he was rated in the first place? Noel Gallagher, I mean, his solo on Live Forever, that he plays note for note exactly the same, he just must have worked out, you know, methodically and memorised. You know, he's just not a natural lead guitar player, you know. And uh, I, I can't imagine anyone ever thought he was. But no, you're right. When I was about, um, I don't know, it must have been like 12 or 13, so like we would sit around talking about who was the best guitarist. And, uh, and the big issue was, this is so embarrassing. The big issue was, is it, you know, Jimmy Page or Eric Clapton or whatever, Jeff Page, or is it Elvin Lee? Because he's the fastest. He's the fastest. And the fastest. He's faster. He can play more notes per minute, which is like saying a book's particularly good because it was written really quickly. or Typed what, really fast. What, where, what did Truman Capote say about, no, about Jack Kerouac? Was, yeah, that's not writing, that's typing, typing. wasn't it? About <laughs> on the road, you know. So, I mean, which is ridiculous. But actually, uh, you know, there are very few guitarist that you ever looked at in tech did you in technical terms i used to look at bert yansh and john remborn and folk guitarists like that and david graham and think that's technically incredible how did they do that but in terms of electric guitarists i mean did you did you sit there and think oh i i went through i went through the period of uh of, of being very persuaded by but i mean think about it, the thing about playing the guitar is it, it was a display as well as a, an auditory yeah, was. experience wasn't it it was something you looked at and it was kind of impressive to look at, whereas playing the piano is not really yeah. just something about the guitar. It's because it's mobile and because it's roughly it's about the size of a machine gun, isn't it? That's, yeah, absolutely. I always, I always think that's a huge part yeah, of his it's appeal. A prop. Uh, it's a it's a prop, uh, and also I I fell for that idea that the higher up the fretboard they played, the more intensely they were feeling it. Yeah. Which is kind of nonsense. It's just a cliche. And all they good. Yeah. Well, that's right. But, no, uh, no. but no, I, I I remember those days sitting there, you know, <laughs> writing down lists, trying to work out who should be third and who should be fourth. Exactly. It's like a like it's a melody maker a, poll. I know. It's such a boy thing. It's totally a boy thing. Ridiculous idea. And so I, much I, of it so, is about tone, though. Don't you think? You well, know, yeah, BB King. BB King. I can't remember a single solo we ever played, but it's about a tone in a series it is of phrases. That note, yeah. Ernie Isley is just a tone. 
you know, yeah. it's, and Keith Richards and Robbie Robertson. There's not one single guitar solo by either of them that you can sit there and say, I remember that, or I can, you know, note for note. It's just that it's all about texture, really. It is. It is. This is why, you know, if anybody asks me now, not that anybody does, who's the, who's the greatest guitar player of my, of your lifetime? I would probably say something like Steve Cropper. Oh, that's good. You know, you know, because you just think about how many records Steve Cropper has played yeah. on in all kinds of different styles. And he's, he's pretty much astounding all the way through. He and is astounding. You know, and he's, it's not a solo or anything like that. It's just what he contributed to the sound of things. Although um, my... Favorite, uh, my favorite, the one guitar player that if I could choose one guitar player to listen to for for the you know the last half hour before I die, I'm gonna guess it's Richard Thompson. It's Richard Thompson, yeah, 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 because he kind of broadcasts on my frequency, you know. You're also not quite sure what he's gonna play, he's not completely predictable. I tell you, I absolutely love actually. Here we are debunking the whole idea of two blokes sitting around saying, Well, who's the best guitarist? No, we're doing it. We're actually doing it. But my, I absolutely love Well, he's not an electric guitarist, but David Rollins, you know, who plays on the Killian Welsh. The other half. Oh, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. oh, my God, he's fantastic. That effortless embroidery, just beautiful, soft little phrases, and kind of, you know, doesn't push himself forward. It's just part of the accompaniment. He's absolutely he never plays anything. Yeah. Uh, that you, that well, so talking about Robbie Robertson, as, as you were, I note that they're reissuing Stage Fright. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The band's third album, was it third album? Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, next year on some anniversary, I suppose. Um, and, and they changed they change the order or something? They've changed the order because of the, of the track listing because this is apparently the, the order that comes out in February is the order it was all supposed to be. Because apparently, while it was being kind of mixed and uh, and presumably sequenced by Glyn Johns and Todd Rundgren, the band were on um, on that. Do you remember that train journey they took across the yeah. uh, United States and Canada? Yeah, the or tour. Whatever, with with, with uh, who did they go with? Did they go with the Grateful Dead. Grateful Dead and like? Janis Joplin was that the one? I think it was. I think it was. Yeah, they were they were on a train. Uh, and so they were kind of incommunicado for a couple of weeks, and uh, therefore they had no part in the sequencing of it, and that was done by producers and engineers. Uh, but I still think it's a it's a rum idea to me to take you know a fifty year old album and and change the running order, because the people who are going to go and buy it are the people who've been listening to the old version for 50 years, aren't they? And they're, and going, they're going to be annoyed. Be they're going to think that's sacrosanct. And they'd be right. Yes. Don't yeah. you think? Well, I think so, yeah. I mean, because because I would have thought, uh, if you want to kind of republish what should have been the running order, fine. That's what Spotify's for. That's what streaming services are for. You can you can take those tracks, you can put them in any order you like, and that's fine. You've got the experience. But don't put it on a vinyl records or whatever no it's wrong that somebody's there are little um there are little internet things where you can find for example the beatles uh abbey road medley and you can find it in its original version with the bridge for mean mr mustard in there and her majesty's in there as it was originally and then it was clipped out and they stuck it at the end as a secret track and when you hear that it just sounds so jarring and so utterly wrong you know you're it's you don't look at it as a curio an interesting thing you just feel absolutely horrified by its existence you've been messing with my memories you know i know i know completely that's what you feel about it so since we spoke last time um 
John Le Carre. Uh, oh yeah, 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 John died. Le Carre. Yes, I love John Le Carre. God, I well, John Le Carre. Let's be fair. Was eighty nine good innings? Yeah, very good. Very innings. Very good innings. Fantastic career. You know, really successful for, for a long, long period of time, and provided me with so much pleasure. Um, and uh, you know, I, I one of the things that I was love about John Le Carre, and I was watching an old interview with him. Was was all the all the the language and the terms with which you would refer to the world of, uh, of espionage that that his characters you know lived in, uh, and this was you know you and I both both worked uh, one time or another on Shaftesbury Avenue, so you go through Cambridge Circus, and uh, and the you know, the headquarters of the the intelligence services of those days referred to in John Le Carre books were always the circus. And yeah. it was always supposed to be just above a tailor's or something like that. Yeah. So every single time I ever go through Cambridge Circus, I just look around, see if I could see where he might have sighted it, you know. But he used to refer to all the different uh, specialisms of the espionage services by these wonderful names like... Uh, the scalp hunters. Yeah, scalp hunters. The lamplighters, you know, the inquisitors, the janitors. Yeah. The uh, what? The, the mothers. The mothers who are the kind of middle-aged ladies in the typing pool. Brilliant band names. And uh, absolutely, you can make any of them band names. And um, and I was watching an interview with him, and, and uh, you know, because he obviously had some background in intelligence, uh, where he said, you know, where do these names come from? He said, I made them up. And and I couldn't think of a comparable case of a of an author, you know, taking a fictional world and just inventing a load of really plausible terms. Completely plausible. Because because one of the great attractions of reading John Le Carre is that it is it's particularly attractive to males. I think is the idea of an inner world. You know, here's a load of professionals talking to each other in their special shorthand. And don't you wish you knew it? You know what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah. An immensely attractive idea. And in his case, he just he just invented it. All of it. You know, pavement artists were the, you know, the people who followed people on the street, you know, That's right. pavement artists. Yeah. And uh, they were just beautiful ideas. And he did them with such conviction all the way through his books that I always thought, oh, he just there's obviously those are terms used in MI6. They exist. Precisely. But no, he'd sat there as a typewriter and he'd written them down, you know, for the first time. And uh, what great names for bands, though, mate. Scalp. Oh, oh absolutely. Honey Trap. Honey Trap. The Russia House, The Looking Glass War. Yeah. yeah you yeah. listen to them, wouldn't you? Call for the Dead, Secret Pilgrim. In, in Peel Voice, Madame Ostro uh, Ostrovkova, yeah. uh, Molly Meekin, Otto Leipzig, Tony. Toby Esterhaus, you know. Those are Toby Esterhaus, yeah. Show, show, uh, the uh, the people who at MO6 who, who made documents, forged documents, were known as the shoemakers. That's brilliant. <laughs> and I'll tell you, I've just been looking again uh, last night. I was looking. There's a wonderful biography of John le Carre, if anybody's interested, but written by a guy called Adam Sisman. And I don't know how much you know about John le Carre, but he, his father was a legendary reprobate con man, you know, living, you know, ducking and diving either side of the law. Yeah. Um, who caused him great embarrassment throughout his life. And I was just looking at the passage 
about when Spio came in for the cold, which is his breakthrough book, 1964, same year as the Beatles go to go to America, you know. And uh, it was a huge hit out of the box in the United States. It, within six weeks of being published, it was uh, it was number one in the New York Times bestseller list. Later in the year, it was taken up by the Book Club of the Month. Uh, it was a selection. And that meant you sold one million copies. Incredible. One million copies in Harvard. He goes to, he goes to his first trip to New York. He's, he's called off the plane by the stewardess when they arrive before everybody else gets off. Mr. Le Carre, yes, just follow me, goes down the steps and there at the bottom of the steps on the tarmac at JFK is a limousine into which he's ushered and his publisher is in there. Straight into the city, straight to the Plaza Hotel, facing a load of journalists. He's the biggest story in, in, in literary America. And then late at night, he's taken to the Stork Club or the 21 or one of these very ritzy, you know, hangouts. And there at his table is conducted to is his father smoking a big cigar and a huge great drink having arrived in New York about two months ahead of him to take advantage of his, set, his imminent his celebrity. celebrity. And, uh, has been, has been you know, borrowing houses free for two months on the basis of Just his... Just high son. on the whole. He has, he has nothing What's his relationship with, with his father? I mean, not not good, then. Oh, really? From, really? He hadn't seen him for long. So we're virtually in Freddie Lennon territory. Oh, he would be, it's right... If Freddie Lennon had a, had a kind of the smarts of a, of Arthur Daly, you know, uh, that that would have been John Le Carre's dad. But honestly, that, that the biography by Adam Sisman, I can't recommend it too highly. It's a it's a really really good book. That sounds fantastic. Uh, talk, talking of publishing things, I see Julie Birchall's been fired by her publisher. I was following that, and I thought that was... I, 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 I don't know why I was so entertained by it. It's wrong to be entertained by it. But, you know, Julie Birchall, when you sign Julie Birchall, you you know, you're, you you want her to be over the top and go the extra mile. And she does. I mean, what she was actually doing was writing a book about uh, cancel culture, wasn't yeah. she? And the great irony is, of course, she's now being cancelled for <laughs> an extremely one-wise... By her own publisher, for an extremely one, uh, unwise tweet, um, which had a kind of, um, you know, a kind of anti... Anti, anti, anti-Muslim kind of sentiment to it, didn't it? So uh, <laughs> complicated. But what do you, you know, why do you sign Julie Birchall if it's not to go too far? What's the yeah. point? If Julie Birchall turns up at your office and say, "I've seen the error of my ways, and in future I'm going to be, I'm going to moderate my language," <laughs> you'd think, "Yeah, well, we don't want you. We want somebody we want, else." We want, we want Julie Birchall. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know. Talking of Islam, I was reading this morning uh, that um, some, some guy had been tweeting about he'd, he'd um, Islam, uh, Muslim background, and he said, my family had never celebrated Christmas. Uh, you know, so it was always a bit odd to me. But obviously this year, because we're forcibly separated, I've decided I'm going to pursue Christmas. And so he had a really good series of tweets, this guy, about suddenly discovering Christmas, you know, He's done a whole two weeks about how it feels to be on the inside of Christmas for the first time. For the first time, time I've never understood it. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> never, never really understood it. I thought it was quite a sweet idea. I thought it was a classic case of, you know, 
what we're all going to have to do, which is make the best of it. Make the best of it. My God, it could be a little. It, it's going to be going to be a bit quiet, isn't it? There's no doubt about that. And uh, the turkey will last a while. The turkey will be taking turkey sandwiches to to the beach in summer. I think. <laughs> you know? This is a junction in the word podcast. It separates that bit. From this next bit. Oh, it's any other business. We're joined by Alex Gold. Hello, Alex. Hi there. We were talking, um, I think, last week about um, whether artists could stop other artists recording their songs. And uh, you'd had a little bit of experience of this, hadn't you, with with clearing tunes? Yeah, one of my my CD double lives is um, is, <laughs> is it not is, is it licensing? So um, yeah. And uh, what I, from what I understand, um, you you you're perfectly free to record and release a cover song, um, and when you register it, part of the so part of the metadata, the metadata is all the track info. So you're talking writer, publisher, yeah, that yeah. you have to import into the system um, when you release it. Um, that gets traced and funneled through. So all sales, a percentage of that goes through to the publisher and it will get sorted out automatically by the collecting societies, basically. But uh, you're, you're free to record your own version, but you're not free to release anybody else's version. Now, I that, know, that artist I, can't can't stop you recording. Well, that, I, well that's what interests me, because Prince did, didn't he? Well, he, he, I think he tried to. Um, yeah. And... Um, because he he also resented it. It's interesting you should say this because I've been reading a book all about this this week. Uh-huh. <laughs> this, uh, uh, this is Adventures of a Jazz Age Lawyer, and it's about a guy called Nathan Birkin, and he was the guy who invented the collection agencies and all that back in the you know pre First World War in the United States, and he was the person who established the kind of copyright we have nowadays. And he was the guy who established ASCAP, which is the great American collection agency on behalf of of all the artists. And his theory was that the future of the music business is a river of dimes. It's all about tiny sums of money that just keep flowing forevermore. And so you, entering your your metadata, you are playing your little part in the in the maintenance of that massive river of dimes and this is an absolutely fascinating book because it if ever people think you know they tear their hair about what's happening in the music business nowadays and the old models busted and the new one hasn't hasn't come along you realize when you look back you know a hundred years or whatever it's been changing absolutely all the time and he came along at a time when the biggest music reproduction um, machinery, the most important thing was the player piano. You know, it was the, the piano. Oh, you, you had a, the, the sheet the of paper with the holes in it that went across the, that's right. It's a pianola, basically. Yeah, yeah. it's a pianola. So a piano that played itself, effectively. And, um, and recording wasn't considered a big thing. Radio wasn't even heard of at all. And so, and so... Publishers would pay um, performers to play songs in front of the public because then the public would want to hear them on the piano roll or would go and buy the sheet music. So it worked in a totally different way. You know what I mean? They paid to get this stuff performed. And what he changed was he said, no, in future, 
you're going to pay in order to perform things. You know, you're going to have to pay the collection agencies. And it took years and years to build up, but he eventually did it. And it's absolutely extraordinary. And his view was that the big money was going to be made out of cinemas because cinemas in those days, silent movies, the top cinemas had orchestras and the orchestras played all the way through the film. And so if you could get from those places a dime out of, for every tune, and there were millions of these places up and down the United States, you could build an enormous great revenue stream, which he did. And so, and this, you know, the, the whole thing, the, the music business machine has reinvented itself at 20, 30 year intervals throughout the last 100 years. And we'll no doubt continue doing it in the next 100 years. You know, I love all that. Do you remember when we interviewed Simon Napier Bell? Yeah, yeah. Simon Napier Bell, uh, Magic, you, you'll probably remember this. It was a word in your ear event. He'd written a book about the, the history of the music industry. And yeah. there was a bit where he talked about uh, the first musicals. And this would have been in either this late 19th century or whatever. And, uh, and they used to pay people to learn the songs in the musicals, to sit in the audience and join in with the songs and then afterwards as they were leaving sing the songs to give the impression that they were so catchy yeah. there were such instant hits that uh, that you know there might be a market in selling the sheet music and uh, they were actually paid to do that brilliant idea. he makes an interesting point of this which i never realized it wasn't until the advent of radio that songwriting started to get quite sophisticated because if you wanted to hit big hit song in the 1910s or you know uh, first world war or whatever you had to make it simple enough that anybody could play it yeah you know because you know the challenge was could you sit down at, could a piano you play at home on your piano because every home started absolutely piano. yeah and uh, and once in the 20s and 30s that was less of a consideration because you were trying to interest people in the records and so and the songwriting became more sophisticated. The performance became more sophisticated. Yeah. It changed the music. It's always the same. Technology changes the music. It's not the other way around. It's technology yeah, it's changes riveting. the music. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it's a fascinating story. Absolutely fascinating story. Now, now songwriting's changed to, to, um, to a formula where the, the objective is to, a grab the listener as quickly as possible and maintain their attention for as long as possible. So if, if you listen to a lot of modern pop songs, um, you know, your Billie Eilish's and your Taylor Swift's, you'll hear lots of sections that probably could be choruses one after the other. You know, it's just hook after hook after hook after hook. That's it. And it's just different hooks bolted together. It's really clever. You know, you get the you probably get the purists going, that's not proper songwriting, but actually it's 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 become a science and it's well it's it is well the classic if you want to know about this, the uh, terrific book by John Seabrook, isn't it, Mark? Yes, the, uh, the song machine. Fantastic. Uh, we both uh, uh, God, it's a good book. And it, he John Seabrook, New Yorker writer who became fascinated by the music that his kids listened to in the back of the car. And it was kind of Britney Spears and the Bankstreet Boys. And he just, and it was so alien to him, he became fascinated. And he wrote a whole book about where it comes from, that music. And there was yeah, because there were the, the old sections. Factory. There was, the, was the, the top liners, were they called? The people who the Track and hook. Track and hook is the, uh, is the method, you know. And uh, going back to... Track and, yeah. track and trace. <laughs> track yes. <laughs> it's funny when, uh, going back to the Bee Gees film, there is a point in there, I think it's with Night Fever, isn't it, where he says, 
that was the first case Albie Luton says. So we start with the rhythm track and we just built on top of it. Well, that's now how all records are made, isn't it? You know, completely. But it, it was it was but revolutionary. At the time, that was yeah. In 1976 or whatever it is that they... There's another brilliant moment in the Bee Gees where they, where they talk about, I think Arif Marden is producing them and, yeah. and uh, one of them, Barry, I think, just suddenly does this falsetto mm. and he says, hold, hold that. Now that's yeah. interesting. That's a new sound. It's a bit like the moment, the changing point in Neil Young's life when he yeah. invented that high-pitched way of singing, which he didn't originally do. He said that became the trademark. Yeah. I love those moments when the whole thing changes. Just I think it's similar with Oasis, actually. Like when uh, Liam was singing Cigarettes and Alcohol at a gig and he, he went, shine for the first time. Oh, yeah. And Alan McGee went, do that again, do that again. And that yeah. became, you know, you know his, his trademark. Absolutely. That's a good programme. Do that again. Be a good radio programme. Do that again. <laughs> and the little, the, there's little moments in loads of music where people go, no, no, do that again. No mistake. Do it again. It's really interesting. Make so, a career out of it. What else is happening, Alex? Have we got any new patrons or anything to talk about? patrons, indeed. Absolutely. Uh, welcome to you all. There is Hugo. All right. Mysterious Hugo. Okay. The, uh, okay. Mr. R. Dwensing. A very formal. Equally mysterious. A John the Carey character. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and uh, the more conventionally named Mike Smith. Um, <laughs> I think we remember that, remember that yeah. can't we? <laughs> Along with Richard Goodwin, and they are all annual patrons. Of course, you get 15% discount if you subscribe annually. Um, and we also and a special have... birthday celebration. Indeed. Um, Steve Edwards, Mitchell Edmund and Jonathan Jacobson. So welcome to, oh, welcome them, all. to them all. And they'll Much all... appreciated. They'll all be beneficiaries of the special Patreon-only um, Word of Your Ear annual, which we are doing later this week. Is that right, Alex? Absolutely. There, there, there is nothing righter, in fact. So we intend to be, you know, like the Windmill Theatre during the Second World War. We never close. <laughs> so, you know... Even if, on Christmas Day, if, if think, we'll be there. I glass think... of green ginger wine. <laughs> Paper hat at Jaunty Tilt. <laughs> well, you know. Talking about the original lineup of Wishbone Ash. Yes, because <laughs> as our motto has it, you know, let's face it, there's nothing else to do. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.